Father, I thank you for your testimony that we find in Daniel 3. And I thank you so much that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I thank you that through Christ, we have the opportunity to be your people. We have the opportunity to be a holy priesthood, a royal people, a people for your own possession that we actually become your inheritance. We become the object of your love and redemption. Thank you so much that we have full acceptance by you, that we are given a spirit within us by which we call out Abba Father, which we know you as our daddy. And Lord, you never turn away from us. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us this morning through this chapter, and, and I pray, Lord God, that it would bring you glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Daniel 3 this morning, and in our study of Daniel and our understanding of that, there we go, our understanding of that as being the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. The supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. Now, I don't know if you caught the email notification that went out uh, since there was going to be some fun bearable weather this past Saturday that there would be a sledding time at um, the Payne's house and, and I went and enjoyed that with my family and, and it reminded me of a story uh, an experience I had as a youth pastor when I took a group of students to a winter retreat at a camp that had a sledding hill that was 100 to 150 yards long and, and really steep. It was a tubing hill. And it was really more of like a tubing chute. <laughs> and one person at a time or for 10 adventurous people to go down all linked together if they wanted to. And so some students were building a ramp at the bottom of this hill, which I, ha I have to admit I was somewhat a part of. But... Um, <laughs> So I'm waiting at the top of this hill to try out this ramp, and the students at the bottom that were building were like, don't wait, don't go yet, don't go yet, it's not finished, it's not finished. And I saw that one of our youth leaders was, had to, I knew that he be, would be leaving that day, and I saw that he was driving out, and I wanted to, to go and catch him and, and thank him and say goodbye and stuff. And so I was like, I'm not going to hit the ramp, don't worry about that, you know, and everything. They're like, don't go! You know, and so I get on my tube and I come down, and they're like, oh, what's he doing, you know? Well, there in the group was the loyal Neil Canelli. And Neil is about a, a high schooler, about my height, and about 250 pounds. A stocky kid with, as, sorry high schoolers, but not everything was firing up there quite yet, you know? <laughs> and so Neil decides he's going to defend the ramp. So as I'm coming down, I'm like, what's he doing? You know, Neil kind of gets down in kind of a stance and takes off like a lineman and levels out his body so that just at the right moment, his shoulder and my shoulders meet together as I'm going probably about 25 miles an hour on this tube. I remember clearly sliding out on my back across the snow and having heard all of my bones crack from my head to my toes 
all at once upon hitting Neil Kennelly. And, and I slide across the snow, and the first word out of my mouth is, Neil! <laughs> and Neil pops up off, as kid that age is able to do, pops up off the ground, looks at me and goes, representing. <laughs> and I'm sitting there aching, you know, probably feeling some of those pains today. This morning we find Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in a dangerous situation. In chapter 3, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all by their lonesome, represent, find themselves representing what it means to worship God alone. They face a trial and temptation to either meet their needs for safety, security, and recognition through idolatry. Or they will serve God with their lives and trust him to glorify himself as he sees fit. In chapter 2, God showed how he is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And in chapter 3, he shows how he is the source of mighty power and deliverance. Looking at Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold as we step into walking through Daniel this morning. We start out at the beginning, verses 1 through 7, and we see Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king, and then King Nebuchadnezzar sent and gathered the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's very interesting, first, that Nebuchadnezzar erects an image of gold. It would have been made of wood and probably plated with gold as this uh, is like those statues that we find from that period of time. The image that Nebuchadnezzar erects is nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. Now, I have here a picture of a, a memorial in downtown Rapid City, next, which you might recognize as being next to the Montgomery County Courthouse. This is the Montgomery County Tribute to Her Heroic Dead. The, the memorial is formally known as. Now, you can see here in this picture that maybe you can make out the memorial is here in front of the Rapid City Courthouse, or I'm sorry, the Montgomery County Courthouse here in Crawfordsville. I said Rapid City. Sorry. More than once. Okay. Um, but if you saw proportionally Nebuchadnezzar's golden image as it was built 90 feet tall. This is how it would be. The memorial uh, in Crawfordsville at the Montgomery County Courthouse is approximately 30 feet tall. And it's understood by most that the 90 feet probably included a base to it because 90 feet by 10 feet is a very disproportional um, uh, measurements. Um, and wouldn't necessarily work uh, architecturally. 
So it's assumed that this 90 feet probably included a base at the bottom, and this is how it would tower over the memorial in downtown Crawfordsville. We're told that this is a special dedication ceremony to this image, and that it appears that the leaders from throughout the empire were invited. Those he gathered described di different branches of his government as well as different levels of his rulers. They ranged from leaders of entire provinces of the empire to leaders of local municipalities. And it goes on in verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, you'll notice that this chapter gives lists upon lists of, and, and repeats them again and again. There's a purpose to this, not only in Daniel's telling of it, but also in the original words of the, well, it's probably in the verse, in the original words of this herald, as he's listing off and describing, you from all of the nation, all of the peoples, all of the languages from within Babylon's empire, and and, as and he lists off, when we give you all the music that we can give, or this strange symphony of music, and Daniel also is listing off all of these people that have come. There's this sense of the effort here is to unify and to present an intimidating presentation of Nebuchadnezzar's power and glory in order for the purpose of unifying all these different leaders that were under him. There was a purpose to gathering them together to bow down to this image. Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to unify, unify his diverse empire of peoples under one common object of worship. There would have been no objection made by the vast majority of people of that time. Uh, one commentator named Longman, he puts it this way, the people of the time would by and large have had little difficulty with this request. After all, most people of the ancient Near East were polytheists, meaning they had many gods. They were used to acknowledging many deities. They could easily assimilate this statue into their religious scheme, especially under the duress of capital punishment. The capital punishment that is threatened is to be obliterated in a fiery furnace. Large brick kilns were common in this, this area, in this time of history. They've also been known, had been known to double as means of execution as well. It's suggested by some that the fiery furnace would have been conveniently located near this image because it would have been used to build the image itself. 
Many um, of the kilns that have been excavated from that time, they're made up of large domes that are large enough to require pillars to be built from the, on the inside of them to hold up the dome roof. The upper part of the roof would have formed to, into a cone in order as a sort of chimney to release the gases and the smoke while yet at the same time holding in the majority of the heat and, and creating a, a, the perfect environment for making bricks and burning people, I guess, um, and concentrating the heat. We'll read later that this, this cone, this chimney, would also become a, a wicked, malicious tube slide. So moving along in verse 7 here, it says, Therefore, as soon as all of the peoples heard the sound of the harp, harp the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And this brings us to the accusation against these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that we find here in verses 8 through 12. It says there, Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the harp, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's, no, it's interesting to notice here that the accusation came from some of the king's magicians and enchanters. These people would have been among his, his political advisors, if you remember, that, that have, been, have, have popped up in the previous two chapters already. They're also described as being Chaldeans, who would be people from the province that the city of Babylon is within. So they were homegrown people. And so we can... We can a surmise from that that they didn't have uh, good feelings about these foreigners, these Jews having been elevated so quickly into the king's, in the king's government. Uh, they are also malicious in their accusation of the three young men, hoping to cause harm to them. You may recall the appointment of the three young men from the end of chapter 2. And we'll just look back at this. It says in verses 48 through 49, it says, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. These verses point us to a possible reason why Daniel was not accused. It's possible to speculate here that, that he simply outranked the accusers and had too much political power. I wouldn't be surprised also if the magicians and the king himself did not want to mess with Daniel at all. 
You see, it fits the, a man-centered view of religion or an animistic view of God and, and religious things to think that a deity concentrates his power in certain people who, who show certain qualities or, or maybe have been able to manipulate that deity in order to gain more power from him. Daniel might have been thought to be off-limits while his three friends would have been fair game because it would have been thought that God was not obligated to them like he was to Daniel because of some reason and the power that had been shown uh, in him in the previous chapter as we read. These verses also remind us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted quickly to their places of authority. This probably, as I mentioned, would have been a reason for the local Chaldean magicians to become jealous. That jealously likely turned into malice, which brought them to, the, to point out that the three young men had disobeyed the king's order. Notice also that this jealousy is also reflected in the way that the three young men are described to the king. In verse 12, they're described as the Jews whom you have appointed to the affairs of the province of Babylon. Kind of like, king, what'd you do here? You know, uh, was this wise? Look what they're doing. This brings us to the confrontation with King Nebuchadnezzar here in uh, verses 13 through 18. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. So he says, if you're ready, once you hear this, if you're ready to fall down, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? So the king kind of sets up a personal, okay, let's see if this is true. It's going to happen. Let me, I want to see for myself what you're going to do here. The tension of the story comes to a fever pitch with the fury of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar obviously believed that these three young men were sincere, but he also believed that everyone had a price at which they were willing to back away from their convictions. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar came to admit that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, of Lord of Kings, as he called him. But now in chapter 3, just a short time later, it seems that we find him testing the reach of this God of gods. He's demanding that Daniel's three friends bow down and worship an image that he's created. He's not telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to deny the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you notice that? He's simply telling them to include the worship of the image that he's constructed. Just, just become what I am. Just 
just include this with your God as well. He's threatening Daniel's three friends with a horrific death as a testimony to all of his authority. And he's questioning whether there is any God who is able to deliver them from his deadly plans. With this question about the ability of their God, Nebuchadnezzar reveals just how little he truly understands Jehovah. I hope that you see this morning just how similar his beliefs are to the people that we are surrounded with today who ask, why is it that it has to be only Christ? Can't he just be one of the ways? Why is it that your beliefs have to exclude my beliefs? Why is it that the scriptures have to say that, that I am wrong? Can't we all be right? You may recall the theme verses of our study of Daniel. This doesn't necessarily reflect what I'm saying here, but it more reflects generally what's going on in the book of Daniel. As we mentioned, these were the theme verses for Daniel. Daniel 2, 20 through 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. In chapter 2, it became obvious that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the one to whom belongs wisdom in the fact that he was able to both declare and interpret the king's dream and show how he had given the king this dream in order to foretell centuries of empires that were to come. Here in chapter 3, it's time to answer the king's question and see that Jehovah is the one who has might as well as wisdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king in a profound way that leaves me, I don't know about you, but it leaves me dumbfounded with their, their, their courage and their wisdom. Remember, we're talking about young men, probably late teens by this time, early 20s. And I only pray that, I, that God would give me the grace and strength to answer in this way if ever I'm challenged as, as clearly as this. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, the king and sa- answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, don't even start up the band. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And now he gets even more amazing. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice that they give testimony to what they know about the ability of God to save them. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. They recognize that that there is a reputation on trial here and it is more important than theirs. It's the reputation of their Lord. 
And they follow with that amazing statement, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Along with acknowledging God's ability, they recognize his sovereignty over them as well. They might be aware of the prophet Isaiah, who was sawn in two without God's immediate deliverance. What of Habakkuk, another prophet to the northern tribes, who was likely killed by the Assyrians when they wiped out the tribes north of Judah that had belonged to Israel? They might have even already wondered what happened to Jeremiah, who had been left in Jerusalem after they had been removed in the first deportation. Had he been killed? They had no doubt in God's power to save them, but they recognized that he is not obligated to do so. Very different from the religion of Nebuchadnezzar. They knew the second command of the Ten Commandments that says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. <clears throat> now let's just stop here and remind ourselves of what is really going on in idol worship. What is really going on that God would say, don't make an image and bow down to it. Now, obviously, what's going on theologically is that the idol is thought to represent a deity behind it. If you remember, um, after coming out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, and Israel starts to get really nervous. The Hebrews start getting really nervous about where is he? Where's our go-between between us and God? Aaron starts getting really nervous. So what does he do? He builds a golden calf, and he doesn't say, I've got a new God for you. He says, behold the God who delivered you out of Egypt. All of a sudden, they wanted something to focus their worship on because they were concerned, how do we placate this God? We have this tendency to want to focus on something physical to get what we need. So let's remind ourselves that idol worship is a means of serving oneself. People do this by taking what God has given them to honor him with in worship. And they take that and they say, okay, how can I use this to get what I need? Marduk is the leading god of Babylon at this time. He was thought to be responsible for providing fertility to wombs and to crops. Ishtar was thought to be the god who gave his worshippers sexual potency and victory in war. To worship these gods was to serve oneself by taking what belongs to God and then offering it to this image in order to get from that image what they thought that that image was, was uh, in charge of. The belief was that that God would then be obligated 
to bless the worshiper with what that false god was thought to be in control of. Not only is the statement here of the three young men that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. If not, if, if, let me say, where they say, but if God does not deliver us, let it be known we will not serve your God. It's not only amazing and an example of faith despite the immediate threat, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego distinguish God from the false gods of idolatry. He deserves their whole mind, heart, and strength. He does not approve of divided worship. They also point out that their obedience, as I said, does not obligate him to save them from the fiery furnace. You know, they also knew the history of the nation of Israel, of being one full of national idolatry. In fact, I believe that this story may be the pinnacle experience of God's dealing with his people with regard to their idolatrous heart. Since entering the promised land, God's people were drawn away by the promises of obligated gods. Man, if I, if I take my, the first fruits of my crops to this temple, that's a God that from what I understand, I can obligate that God to actually serve me. They spent years dedicating themselves to false gods in the hopes of securing their daily bread. Finally, God removed them as he had promised that he would do in response to their disobedience and idolatry. I think these three young men said in their hearts, as well as Daniel in chapter 6 that we will see, it stops now. Whether we live or die, it's time that Israel and the world sees that God is worthy of our sacrifice. <clears throat> and I'll point to, in a bit here, the, res the result <clears throat> that we will later see in Israel's future. But this brings us to the miraculous deliverance <clears throat> we see in verses 19 through 27 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and his expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, meaning heated as, as hot as it can get. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. This story is coming into a climax with the rage of Nebuchadnezzar. All care is taken to ensure no possibility of survival. And it goes on in verse 21. These men were bound with their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was so urgent that the, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. As they're described here as being taken up to this exit point of the chimney and thrown in to the furnace. And it goes on. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, 
Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to him, to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So by looking into the opening of the furnace at its base, the king is amazed to see four men walking around. Notice they're not running out of the flames in fear, but walking amidst the fire. He also sees a heavenly being who he later describes as being an angel, but we're not going to parse the words of a pagan king in order to figure out who this person is. This isn't... Um, conclusive for us whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or if it is an angel the true identity is not known but we can know that this person is the embodiment of God's power to deliver the men so it continues then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace he declared Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego servants of the most high God come out and come here Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, remember all these rulers of the provinces and local municipalities have been hanging around, they've been called to this big dedication? It says the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. What is described in these verses is overwhelming evidence of a genuine miracle. And that's the purpose of it. MacArthur writes, When God enacts a miracle, He supernaturally controls all details so that His power is unmistakable and that there is no other explanation. The ropes were burned away. Their hair, which we've all seen shrivel up at the nearness of a flame, was not even singed. They could not even smell the evidence of the fire on their bodies. I stood next to a campfire yesterday and came back and my smoke, my, my, my coat smelled like smoke. These men were in the midst of this furnace and no smell was coming from them. So we see Nebuchadnezzar responds to God's action here in verses 28 through 30. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve them and worship any god except their own god. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Before we think that this is some sort of conversion experience for Nebuchadnezzar, notice his words. He still calls Jehovah the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he goes on. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. This must be a favorite Punishment, Because I don't know if you remember, this is what he threatened the wise men in chapter 2 with. It says, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had asked in his pride and anger, what God will be able to save you from my hands? He got his answer. The same one that put him in power and will take him out of it as well. Notice also that he, in terms of this, whether this was a conversion experience or not, he does not say there is no other God besides Jehovah. He says there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So he, in his mind, he takes Jehovah. I'm going to put this guy on the shelf. This is the rescuing God. So he's, now, he's the God of wisdom. I saw that a few years ago. And he's also the rescuing God. Okay, he's, he's one I want close by. I'm going to keep promoting these guys. And he makes the declaration with all these rulers standing around, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Ironically, the chapter began with the threat to anyone who does not practice the prescribed idolatry, despite the fact that it is an affront to Jehovah God, it ends with a threat to harm anyone in the whole empire who speaks against Jehovah God. Also ironic is the fact that the three were promoted even further. This is a slap in the face to their original accusers who had been jealous of their promotion in the first place. As I said, I think that this story as well as Daniel's experience in chapter 6, is the pinnacle testimony to Israel and to the nations contrasting Jehovah and useless idolatry. We find that these two stories, here in chapter 3 and we'll see in chapter 6, in these two stories, they dramatically teach the power of God to deliver those who reject idolatry. And this pl takes place in the center of, center of the civilized world. This is different than Elijah and the prophets of Baal um, at Mount Carmel. Thank you. At Mount Carmel and the confrontation there. That's on the edge of the, center, the, 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 the civilized world. Ahab and Jezebel, they're not there to see it. This is in the center of the civilized world. All of the rulers are there to see it. I believe this is the pinnacle testimony and experience that turns Israel away from idolatry. The choice is clear cut. The danger could not be more real. And the most telling fact is that after returning to their land, Israel will never again fall into the sin of national idolatry. Could it be that Israel was finally convinced by God's miraculous deliverance of those who trusted him? Could it be that this event had finally helped to sink in that their God would provide and that idols are lies? Once again, we see from the book of Daniel that God is the supreme ruler in the ungodly world that we live in. God is the supreme ruler worthy of our obedience in the ungodly world that we live in. So what is Daniel 3 for harvest? 
And I'd sum it up in this way. When the heat of trial or temptation is turned up, we must obey the world's true supreme ruler. When the heat of trial or temptation is turned up, we must obey the world's true supreme ruler. The, the, the day may come in the lives of some of us where we literally might be asked the question, who is the God who's going to deliver you? We may face this question in the face of physical danger by a person, an earthly authority over us. But we also face this question whenever we are intimidated by trials or temptations of any kind. Is God going to deliver me from this? So let's make some observations of some eternal principles here. And you see them in your bulletin there. There's probably 20 eternal principles that we can take from this chapter. We're going to focus on these three for harvest. One is that God is able to deliver his people. The statement is made, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. God has promised to be with his children during trials and temptations. Those who have received Christ as their savior, as their only hope for salvation from their sins, they have been given God as their heavenly father, as their daddy, as Romans 8 tells us. And, and he promises us in Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the river, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I think of how the three young men walked through the flames with this heavenly being. Calvin makes the point that God could have extinguished the flames, but he didn't. He saved them amidst the fire, not from it. Amidst the fire. We're reminded in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. These three words back in chapter 3, verse 18 of Daniel. But if not. I'd encourage you to underline that in your Bible. But if not. These three words are so compelling. So often it's not God's plan to dramatically pull us out of the trial or the temptation. Most often it's his plan for us to glorify him by obeying him through it. As we saw throughout the book of James that we studied. We're pressured to agree that there is no other salvation besides through Christ. Don't give in to that pressure. We're ridiculed over the supposed unscientific views of our creation of the world. Trust in what God says. Young people are told that to be a virgin is to be a social misfit. Don't throw away your treasure of following Christ. 
because of the jealousy of others. We can only be sure that the pressure will only increase as the Lord's return is nearer. We're tempted that if I just bought that item, I'll be happy. If I just cross this line, even though I know it's wrong, maybe I'll get provided for in that way. I hope you're encouraged here by a psalm that I read this past week as I was encouraged here. Psalm 56, 8 through 11 tells us this. You have counted, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. They are, are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? With regard to temptation, specifically, we have the promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, in a cursory reading of this, we can think that I have all the ability to resist temptation. That's not what he's saying. In the flesh, we do not. In fact, we're tempted to go through temptation in the power of our flesh. He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure the temptation. And that's through his strength, through his ability, through his power. The second of our eternal principles here is that God is worthy of all of our worship. To love him with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our strength. Not divide our worship between things. They say, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want to read a long quote here from a commentator. And what he says here about idols of the heart. It says, our addictions can make pleasure an idol so that all our efforts and thoughts are directed toward where we will get our next high whether through alcohol, drugs, sex or some other cheap thrill we might seek power in order to control our world or simply to have the resources of revenge toward those who have hurt us in some way all our efforts and strengths thus become directed toward amassing power and influence in society, our family, or even the church. We may make relationships, or one particular relationship, an idol. We may be gearing our life and decisions, not around what we understand to be God's will, but rather the will of a spouse, a child, or a friend. I would include in there boyfriend or girlfriend. Seeking knowledge or degrees, writing books, or delivering impressive sermons. These too may become idols. The list is vast, which is why the danger is so real. The seduction is subtle, 
which is why we can slip so easily into idol worship. But though subtle and varied, I suggest that idolatry, whether of Nebuchadnezzar's sort, he continues, or the kind we discover in our own hearts, ultimately has one object. When the masks are ripped away, behind every idol is the self. Serving ourselves. I may have lost you with this quote, so if you're like me, you need pictures. I'm sorry if you get tired of this one. But it's easy to understand idols in our present day by understanding that for the person who walks with Christ as their Savior, they have the opportunity to have God on the throne of their hearts. For the person who does not have the Holy Spirit within them, has not received Christ as their Savior, it's only self. It's only the bondage of self. But the person who walks with Christ has the opportunity to, to, to serve God with their desires, with, with their heart. They can, they can ask that God would put himself on the throne of their hearts. And what this looks like in their life is that everything that they've been given is an opportunity to worship him with in God-centered worship of sacrifice. Take it, Lord. Take it for your glory, not for mine. This is for you. When we struggle with having ourselves on the throne of our hearts and serving ourselves, then we treat everything around us, we treat every opportunity as an idol, or as you guys have heard before, I think the better picture today is the vending machine. We take what God has given us to worship him with, and we offer it to that idol to get what we think we need. So we're still prone to idolatry. It's just in our culture, it's very subtle. We use relationships this way. We use things this way. We use our money this way. The temptation to pursue personal security or selfish ambition or false intimacy or recognition is very subtle. But we can pray that God will help us to realize when it is that we are serving ourselves. And I'll just say this, and some of you have heard me say this before. The church in China, many, much of the church in China, I'll say, is praying for America to go through persecution. It's praying for us as the body of Christ to go through persecution. The reason why persecution can be a blessing is because those idols that are far under the surface, that surface drops. And all of a sudden, I'm not respected in the community for following Christ. My relationship with the Lord, is it, it's not too self-serving anymore. It's all about for Him. It all becomes a sacrifice. And the choice, that question that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that was boiled down and, and, um, and brought to concentration at that point was made very easy in terms of what is at stake here because of the persecution that they faced. But let me explain to you maybe an example of the Lord working on our hearts in this way from a personal experience. Uh, I, I've shared before that, that I've recognized lately that I can have an idol of recognition. That maybe if something goes unrecognized that I've done, I'm kind of like, hey, wait, what is I in here? 
Didn't anybody notice? You know? And I've started to see that, okay, wait, that's a sign to me that I did that to get something from maybe that person or from that situation. And, um, you know, we can see that sometimes when something goes by and we can, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but I uh, cleaned up, you know, that corner over there in the house, honey, you know. Did you notice that? You know. Um, so I had this just like random experience. Uh, Kelly and I were, were in the grocery store. And um, we need something from way back where we were, you know, and I'm like, I'll go get it, you know, or, or maybe we're, we're, on a, we, we're not sure if we're going to be able to find it. Um, and, and I'm like, I'm going to find this thing, you know, if it's here, I'm going to find it. And all of a sudden I was, it's like the Holy Spirit asked me, why are you so intent on finding this? Why is it so important to you? Do you want some recognition here that you found it? I mean, it's how small that is, but how good it is for God to use these small things for me. And I, I realized something. Lord, you see. You see. Even if nobody else sees, you see me. And the rubber met the road. It was one of those moments for me of the rubber met the road of remembering who we are in Christ and the question of, do I have to take, do I have to serve myself with this moment and look for recognition? Or can, can I remember who I am in Christ and recognize, you see me. And, and so he's kind of been doing that every now and then for me when I'm kind of like, I wonder if anybody, no, wait. You saw. Almost like hoping nobody sees now. Because he saw. Now, maybe that doesn't speak to you like it does me, but... Knowing who we are in Christ allows us to remember that God will always care for our needs. We don't have to pursue getting our needs met by an idol or a vending machine to help us understand. All I need to focus on is living to serve him and leave my needs up to him. I read a verse recently that I think sums this up perfectly from Jonah, Jonah 2.8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, to serve myself and pursue meeting my needs by other means only means that I am giving up on receiving God's love as I could. Those who seek a high from some substance or from some relationship are forsaking the hope that God could meet that need. Those who pursue financial security or, or having what they need at whatever cost are giving up on the hope that God can provide. That verse really speaks to me. So imagine that you're in these men's position. Back to Daniel. You wake up not knowing that today you'll be called to sacrifice yourself for your supreme ruler. The command is given and you make your choice to obey what you know is right. 
You climb to the mouth of the chimney of the superheated furnace, trusting in your Lord. And you die a horrible death with your armor becoming white hot and burning your flesh to the bone. That's because you're not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're one of the king's mighty men. He calls them the mighty men of the king's army. You're a loyal soldier. You obeyed your king, bound up three men, and carried them to what turned out to be your own doom. Did you catch that in the chapter? He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning furnace. And 22 tells us, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men. And this really brings us to this third eternal principle. Be careful who you choose to serve. Be careful who you choose to serve. These men were loyal. They were mighty. They were excelled. The problem was they chose to serve the wrong person. They were obedient. Their demise came from the fact that they were following the wrong person as their supreme ruler. When we are set on serving ourselves, the lie that we are believing is that we are in control. This path leads to addictions, harmful relationships, harmed relationships, and anger over unmet expectations. Serving God with our lives is the greatest adventure of the greatest significance with the greatest freedom we could ever experience. Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody. We're either going to serve ourselves in which we're actually serving the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, the one who is out to destroy us, or we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to close in prayer and ask the guys if they'll come up and lead us in our closing songs. Father, you are worthy to be served. And serving you is full of such blessing. Lord, it might not mean deliverance from earthly trial or earthly temptation. Most often, we're called to endure it. We're called to glorify you through it. But Lord, it does mean joy. And it does mean a significance that we would never have otherwise. Lord, I just, um, I pray that you'd help us to sense that significance through our week when, when serving ourselves and, and treating others and other things like idols beckons to us and, and lies to us to make us, to try to make us think that, that that's where our daily needs are met. Lord, help us to serve you with courage. Help us to serve you with a whole heart, with whole mind all of our strength and all of our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.